Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. The topic today for Spirit in Action is the mental health of our children, and who better to talk about it than the director of Wisconsin's Office of Children's Mental Health, Linda Hall. It turns out that Wisconsin has a somewhat different structure in place to advocate for the mental well-being of our kids, and Linda has spent around 30 years getting to the place where she and her co-workers can more effectively marshal the resources needed to intercede on their behalf. The issues are wide-ranging, including anxiety, depression, stigma, self-harm, suicide, and crime, and the Office of Children's Mental Health tries to find ever better modes of research, consultation, and action to take care of our youth. Thanks go to Andrew Jansen for providing production assistance for today's program, and there will surely be a couple bonus excerpts on our NordenSpearRadio.org website, bits that we can't fit into our 55-minute broadcast. Linda Hall joins us today via Zoom from Madison, Wisconsin. Linda, I'm really happy to be here today with you for Spirit in Action. I'm glad to be here, Mark. And it's kind of unusual. We usually meet on the folk dance floor at Northern Yearly Meeting. How does it feel to be not out there dancing every year? It's not a lot of fun. I miss it a lot. It's also odd being across a computer screen from you instead of out on the folk dance floor, that's for sure. And no music playing. I know this will be a a complete weird thing to toss in here, but isn't dancing one of the great contributors to mental health? Well, activities can be very important for someone's mental health. If you are experiencing depression and anxiety, getting out moving can be really helpful. So dancing can be one of those ways to get your body moving, and which also helps your brain. As the director for the Wisconsin Office of Children's Mental Health, you certainly get to look at the research and get input from a lot of people about mental health in our state, and particularly of our children. What's the direction of flow of that right now for the past two years that we've been dealing with COVID? Up, down, sideways? You know, that's something our office looks at all the time. We're monitoring the well-being of children in Wisconsin. Unfortunately, we were seeing, even in 2019, before the pandemic, that children are experiencing increasing levels of anxiety and depression. The data that we're getting now for 2020 and 21 are confirming that and saying that it actually has gotten worse for kids. A lot of the anxiety that kids experience is really trickling down. And when you talk about trickle-down theory, I think it is more as tumble-down theory, tumbling down from their parents' anxiety. You know, they're noticing what's going on. They know their parents are concerned, and so their anxiety is increasing. But you said this started in 2019 that you noticed this trend without COVID taking place in 2019. Why was it happening before the pandemic? Do we know? No. And actually, it wasn't just in 2019. The annual Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which is done every year, it's done through the CDC, but it's also done in Wisconsin schools, has shown that for the last decade, 
the levels of sadness and hopelessness among high school students in particular has been increasing. It's been a steady upward trend. So it's not new. You know, there's lots of speculation about it. We don't know that there's any one thing. We know that when parents are experiencing difficulties, that that impacts on the kids. Some people theorize that it has a lot to do with the advent of cell phones and the increased time on social media. We try to look at that as, you know, there are some healthy things that happen with social media. There are some, especially during the pandemic, social media has been a way for some kids to connect. So it's about using your social media in a way that's helpful and not harmful. It's a bunch of different factors. Of course, the increasing numbers of children in poverty is a real issue. The Centers for Disease Control has determined that when kids are pulled out of poverty, they have fewer behavior issues. And when we talk about kids and behavior, with their behaviors, they're trying to tell us something. They're showing us what they're feeling inside. So we need to look at those behaviors and try to figure out what's going on behind it. You're particularly the director for the Wisconsin Office of Children's Mental Health. I assume most other states in the U.S. have a similar kind of function or office? I have not found another office that's set up just like ours. Typically, what happens is that states like we have a Department of Health Services, which is really large and covers all kinds of health, all kinds of physical health, aging, disabilities, and mental health. What's typical in states is that there is a division of that department that deals with children's mental health. Our office was started because of mental health advocates for families and people with mental health conditions lobbied for this office. And it was started in 2014 under Governor Walker. And we report directly to the governor. So we're in a little different role than what I've found in any other state. And in addition to monitoring through data that is collected at the state and national level, through monitoring data to try to understand where children are in terms of their well-being and their mental health, we are also challenged to bring efforts together to coordinate efforts across departments that have responsibility for children and families. That's a major piece of what we do, convening people, trying to get them to align their activities and to improve the systems for children's mental health. I want to be clear about this, Linda. The level of organization this has in Wisconsin is different than most or maybe all other states. Is it the difference that it reports directly to the governor? Is that the kind of unusual? Yeah, we have a direct tie to the governor, whereas in other states, it tends to be a bureau or an office buried somewhere in the bureaucracy. I find it interesting that this started when Scott Walker was governor. For people listening to this program from other states, Scott Walker became governor in, I think, 2010. There were dramatic changes to our government that many progressives would have considered negative. There were massive demonstrations about it in 2011. But this happened in 2014. Were Republicans in control of legislature? Was this a Republican-inspired? Where did this come from? I just find it very interesting, the timing. Well, it was really inspired by mental health advocates, organizations like Disability Rights Wisconsin, Family Ties, which lobbies for and works with families who have children with disabilities, including mental health conditions. So we have a pretty good network of people lobbying around mental health. And it was those folks are really saying we need something more here. 
Walker actually put it in his budget. I think the other contributing factor to him doing that is that Mrs. Walker was a real advocate for trauma-informed care. And our office was really focused on trauma-informed care and the people who were identified to start pulling it together were really interested in trauma-informed care. And so I think that she played a role in terms of encouraging more in this area. It's also true that Walker did a major increase in Medicaid payment for mental health services while he was in office. So yeah, I've been working in government, you know, or around government for a long time. And it's always curious to see where things happen and what triggers things to happen. There are sometimes very surprising. Well, it's a pleasant surprise from my point of view. I'm so glad that it did happen and that we've got someone like Linda Hall at your level as director of this program. Give us a little bit of your background, and then we're going to talk about the functions of the Office of Children's Mental Health. But what's your background? How did you get there? And what I'm assuming you're bringing some baggage, good baggage, with you. Yeah, plenty of baggage. Uh, Let's see, more than 30 years of working on health and mental health policy at the local, state, and national levels. I've worked in Chicago around these issues then went to Washington, D.C. and worked for the National Governors Association and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and then came to Wisconsin, where before working here, I also worked for WAFCO, which was a statewide association of private mental health agencies, and did also some work for Kids Forward, which is a child advocacy group that lobbies across the state around lots of issues on improving kids' lives. Do you have a sense of any other state that's close to us in terms of how we deal with children's mental health? Like I said, it's really difficult to say. I I think there are so many different facets of what happens. It depends on how you fund your mental health system. It depends on how you fund your Medicaid system. I like to just now look at it in terms of, are we getting better? And are we doing what's needed for kids? So let me just ask you then, Linda, are we getting better? And what do we do for kids? I think we are definitely making progress in terms of things like school mental health. I have the sense that we are among the leaders in the country in terms of providing mental health treatment to kids at school, which is an easier place for them to access treatment. And I think that it's also more in line with what they need. So we're growing that a lot. And I think that's a real plus. Our office, since it started in 2014, has been a strong advocate for trauma-informed care. So trauma-informed care is really, in a nutshell, it's like, instead of asking a kid, you know, what's wrong with you or why you're doing that, you ask the question, what happened to you? So it's trying to find out, pull out the story and pull out what might have happened that's causing a behavior or a feeling to take place. We have done a lot in terms of trauma-informed care. Our office continues to produce trainings to help people in the workforce the mental health professional workforce, but also other areas where people are dealing with kids to be more trauma-informed, to come to their uh, interactions with kids with that perspective in mind. You know, what happened to you? How can I help you to overcome your trauma? So those are important things. We also at our office are very committed to supporting people with lived experience of mental health, of using the mental health system, particularly the children's mental health system. So we are coaching and mentoring people who want to bring their experience of going through treatment, trying to deal with the system to get treatment, 
bringing them to the table to help us decide what we should be doing and what we need to do to improve the system. So we have some teens and young adults who meet with us, and we have a good number of parents who have children in the mental health system who are active with us. And we're growing that. We're growing the numbers of people who can do that and can participate with us. So I think those are where we really have some really good growing edges. And folks, you can follow up on this call, particularly if you're in Wisconsin or if you're in another state, you want to learn from Wisconsin's programs at children.wi.gov. And the link, of course, is on northernspiritradio.org. The trauma-informed care, there's a drop-down on the menu there that'll discuss that. And the involvement of people who've been affected, people who know the system from the inside. Is this innovative in terms of the field? Is this a national standard? I'm curious about whether this is something that's coming. I'd not heard of it before, and it certainly makes sense to me. We're not the only ones working on this. It's happening in lots of ways. But where I think we're on the growing edge is the way that we're organizing our training. And we are just now starting what we're calling a lived experience partners academy. We are putting together a more formalized process for people to learn about mental health, you know, people who have this experience of being in the system, for them to learn about the broader issues, the policy issues, and then to get some practice sitting at tables. Because people with lived experience coming to a table that's mostly filled with professionals, you don't want them to be a token person. They need to understand how the conversation is going to go how they can contribute to it so that their voice can be heard and can be helpful in terms of doing actions together. So people probably have more heard about this kind of work in terms of people in recovery from substance abuse. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So you've probably heard about peer people, you know, doing recovery. This is similar to that, but the whole work around people with lived experience is growing in some different ways than just the peers that stand beside somebody who is dealing with a substance issue. Let me be clear about this. When you have peer groups, AA or various support groups for people who dealt with suicide in their family or whatever, you've got a group of people who are supporting one another, right? And that's helpful and important. Is this, though, upping the ante to bring them into decision-making? Yeah, so you're exactly right. So there's two aspects to what people might do. So peer support is really standing next to a person, standing by them and helping them through. When we think about peer support related to children and families, one of the best things that happens is that another parent who has experienced going through the system, has experienced a child with mental health issues, that that person comes into your home and helps you through the hard parts of the day, or they help you to understand, you know, what's coming next in the system, or where to turn in the system, who to ask for help, how to get your voice heard, and to make sure that you're getting from the system what you can. That's like that walking beside somebody. What we're doing is bringing people who have had experience in the system, but bringing them to the policy table. And we're encouraging people who want to help us with systems change to be prepared to sit at those tables and to bring their personal experience to the conversations so that we know that we're working on the problems in a way that's really going to address what they've had to experience, the failings of the system that they've experienced. 
I still want to be even more clear because the way that you phrased a couple of those things, it may have been like they're at the table providing their input. Are there still decision makers above them who are in charge? I, partly, I assume that it, it would be difficult uh, having a person who suffered from all of the various mental health challenges and the deficiencies of the system. I imagine they come in with some reluctance to even voice what they've experienced. So I, you, you talked about some training, some preparing them for being part of that, but I don't suppose there's group decision-making. There's still a hierarchy where the decisions are made by someone up above. Yeah, it depends on what we're working on. Most of the policy tables are going to have more professionals, people from state government primarily, who are going to carry out policies or make changes in terms of programs. But where we can, we try to increase the number of voices of lived experience so that we get some balance. It's trying to get enough of the conversation in there, infiltrated, so that we're paying attention to what really matters to people who have to live through the systems. And of course, you know, some people with lived experience, they work for the state or they work for a mental health agency. So they wear two hats while they're at the table. They wear their personal experience hat, and they wear their hat of being a professional in those conversations. And so I'm someone who's been in therapy occasionally. So, you know, I do that too. Also, my son was in therapy, and I have permission from him to talk about some of the experiences that he had. And so I bring that to the conversation as it's appropriate. You and I both have experience that a lot of people are lacking, and that is in Quaker community decision-making. A secular community might call it consensus, but we decide things in unity. So that difference between someone who's providing input and someone making a decision, that line doesn't really exist in Quaker community. How far or close does the work that you're doing, again, we're talking about the Office of Children's Mental Health, And we're involving people who've been affected, who are part of the system in that. How close do we come to deciding things in unity? Well, our team, the Office of Children's Mental Health, is four people. We work very much collaboratively and mostly decide based on consensus. The network that we work with around the bigger issues around systems change for children's mental health is up around 150 to 200 people now. And the way that we get closer to a consensus approach there is that we use a collective impact approach to our work. You talked about trauma-informed care, and I'm woefully ignorant about this. My wife is a psychotherapist. You'd think I'd know a little bit more, maybe, than I do. Trauma-informed care, you, you said, Linda, and correct me if I say this wrong, is that instead of saying, what's wrong with you, what's happening with you, you say, what's happened to you? What's the trauma? I think maybe it removes the shame or the guilt that some people experience about having some deficit themselves. Is that part of the importance of doing that? That's part of it. And part of it is people may not recognize some of what they've been through. They may have so suppressed their traumas that that's what they work on in therapy is getting down to, you know, what are the issues that are really getting in the the way of them living the life, their best life, what's getting in the way. And so sometimes you have to go and dig deeper to do that. But trauma-informed care, I would imagine that a, a lot of your listeners have heard about adverse childhood experiences, which is a study that was done on people to see what happened to them when they were children 
and how did that affect their lives? And so it looks at 10 factors that might have happened to you as a child. And if you have more than six of them, you've had a major impact on your life. And it's very likely that you will have some mental health issues. You will probably have some health issues and you'll have a shorter life expectancy. So trauma-informed care was in part developed in response to this whole body of information about these early childhood adverse experiences. I'm pretty sure based on my upbringing that I need a lot of therapy. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I say you're probably in the seven, eight, nine range, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> well, in fact, you know, I grew up in an alcoholic family. My mom died drunk driving when I was nine. There were other issues there, including financial problems with the family. I and mean, so there's there's a number of things that I'm pretty sure would qualify me for therapy and issues that I do work with. But my question really is, having lived in Africa when I was in the Peace Corps, I'm pretty sure that almost everyone I knew there had a much worse situation than I did, including, you know, children dying because of diseases, things that mostly our medical system here prevents us from having no access to healthy food and water, etc. You know, there's all of those things. So I'm aware that the same external trauma producing events uh, get experienced differently by different people. Do you know what I'm going heading for here? So trauma-informed care, how does that translate to one person being traumatized and the other one not? Or because you've had the same trauma experience, does that mean you're likely to need the same care? Oh, no, I wouldn't say that. And we talk a lot these days about resiliency. So it's not only what traumas did you experience, but how do you process them or how do you manage your life now that you've been through that? How do you respond to what's happened to you? So people come to different levels of resiliency and they come to resiliency in different ways. That will no doubt also be influenced by your culture. So when you're thinking about your friends in Africa, they have different expectations and they're able to manage it in different ways because of how their culture supports them to do that. But I think we also know, you and I have been to Rwanda and talked with a lot of people from there, that we know that there is a lot of people who have not dealt with the traumas that they went through 22 or 23 years ago, and that that's holding them back. And they're visiting those bad experiences on their children because they haven't processed them themselves. So it comes at it in a different way. You know, if you have a bad A score, it's not a life sentence. It's maybe something to recognize that there are things that you might want to explore. You might want to explore how do you become resilient? How do you work through what happened to you so you get to a better place? Well, I want to get to some of those solutions and healing methods that are used in dealing with children's mental health by the Wisconsin Office of Children's Mental Health. And Linda Hall, who's director of that program, she's with us here today for Spirit in Action, our website, northernspiritradio.org. You might be hearing this program directly from our website or via one of the 40-plus stations across the nation that carry our programs. Whichever is true, please come to NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Give us your comments. Make a donation to support this full-time work if you feel led. But also, please make sure you support the local community radio stations. Local media, local voice is so important. That's one of the reasons I'm talking here to Linda Hall. 
again, she's dealing with a program that's specific to Wisconsin and other states have very different programs. But there's something of value of world healing that maybe you'll learn from this discussion with Linda that might apply to your state wherever you are. In any case, there's a link to Wisconsin Office of Children's Mental Health. Children.wi.gov is that website. Again, it's on NordenSpiritRadio.org, along with all the links to our guests from the past 16 and a half years we've been doing this program. One of the things that you'll find on the website for the Office of Children and Mental Health is fact sheets. I'd like to talk about a couple of them. One of them, which just jumped out at me, I think it's maybe your latest one. It's about emerging adults are more likely than older people to engage in crime, but they tend to age out of criminal activity by age 25. And what it says on the site is as their ability to control their emotions and actions improves. And I think that that's true for me, but I'm not sure if it is. You aged out? Yeah. (laughs) Maybe I did. Maybe I was just more emotive in my early years. I don't know if that's how it works. But how big is that effect? Are we talking that someone who's 20 or 18 is 10 times more likely than a 30-year-old to act out in criminal activity? I don't have exact numbers on that. But I will say that as we look at our job in terms of children's mental health, that we consider that we are looking at young people from zero up to 26. We go up to 26 because that's the point at which in our American healthcare system, that's the point at which you can no longer be on your parents' health insurance. So that's one reason. But the other reason is because we know that brains are still developing into the early 20s. So there's a huge body of research about brain development and that what happens to kids and if their brain development is interrupted by maybe, you know, a parent's divorce, maybe some other kinds of traumatic experiences that they've had, that some kids need to have some help getting back on track and getting their brain going. When you get up to the 18 to 24 range, the brain is still growing. And in terms of that part of your brain that helps you think about the consequence of your actions. So we know that that makes a difference that up until then, that young people will do things without thinking them through. And that's what contributes to the change in terms of the crime statistics that you see. So there's actually brain development that's happening that this can be traced to. Yeah. And so when you read about the data in terms of, you know, is juvenile crime up or down? One of the factors is how many kids are in this age bracket where this juvenile behavior is happening and how many of them are in that older teen bracket where they have things at their disposal to get out and get around and do stuff and get in trouble. How many are in that group? You know, another way that we look at this issue of how does erratic, not erratic behavior, but maybe risky behavior affects what's happening with youth in in Wisconsin. We know that we have a higher than national average suicide rate for teens in Wisconsin. That's been the case for many years. And we know that when kids feel like they don't belong at school, that they are more likely to engage in risky behaviors. Those risky behaviors could end up being suicide or they could end up being self-harming kind of behaviors. So one of the things, you know, we talked a little bit before about collective impact. 
as we have been refocusing ourselves with our collective impact approach in mind, we have decided that the one thing that kids at all different ages in Wisconsin need is they need to be better socially connected. And so that is the one thing we are working on is social connectedness of youth, because we know it makes a difference for these teens and the young adults in terms of reducing their risky behaviors. We know that social connectedness is important, that kids need to learn how to have relationships and how to maintain those relationships. And the data are showing us that our kids are losing that ability. Every year, they're losing it a little bit more. That's critical, not only for their sense of belonging, but it's also critical for their ability to learn at school and develop a relationship with their teachers so that they can get the information from their teachers and they can learn. And we know that with really young kids, it's important for them to build relationships because it's in those trusting relationships with adults and peers that they learn the things they need to learn to prepare them for school. You already mentioned, Linda, something about the whole digital connection, whether it's phones or texting or whatever, that this might not be social connectedness that kids are getting out of this. This was perhaps a contributor to the raising anxiety in our society. How do you help them get better socially connected? How does, and I'm not just talking, of course, about Wisconsin Office of Children's Mental Health, but schools, Lutheran social services. How does anyone help kids get better connected so they have that social support? Well, this is what we are working on right now. I mentioned earlier that we already have a network of 150 to 200 people who want to be engaged with us around children's mental health. And what we are putting out to our network is that we want to know from you what it is you are already doing to connect kids to the supports that they need and share that with us. And we have identified some national data points that we can compare ourselves to and some state level data points that we are going to watch and see if we can see progression and some improvement in this area. So we have identified five categories of social connectedness that we think are important. And we're asking people to tell us, what do you do in this area? So the areas, the five categories, if I can remember them all, are family, peers, supportive adults, educators, and then cultural and community people. So we're like going to ask local community organizations that run an after-school program you know, how are you connecting kids? We think they're going to tell us we are connecting kids better to their peers. And they are also getting a good connection to a supportive adult outside of their family. That's important for kids too, is to have somebody in addition to their family who they can go to for help. We are working on that. And we're going to be in the over the next year or so really rolling out more of a message campaign around this, because we think this is what's really important for kids right now. On a personal note, Sandra and I have been watching our grandchildren during the past two years of COVID, the time when we're isolated. We're used to spending weekly time with them, and then we weren't because of the need to isolate. And also kids being away from school or only accessing school via screen, I think it was really challenging for a couple of our grandchildren And we just saw one of them, one of the older ones, actually coming back, feeling more like herself, more having more of her, I think, mental health and mental emotional health, because I think uh, being able to have those connections now, 
Are there any indicators in the studies that there's actually a kind of dip and maybe a bounce back going on at all? Yeah, the data are showing us that there was a dip. I guess you call it a dip. I'm not sure whether we want to call it an increase or a dip. We know that there were that kids are suffering from not having those regular connections. And like we said earlier, the anxiety and depression are in part related to that. And I don't have any data that it's coming back yet, but I have heard from a number of parents that their kids were really nervous about going back to school, that they weren't sure they could handle being in those groups of students. But once they got there, it worked out. After a few days, they were back to normal. So I think what we really need, I think, people to focus on right now is supporting kids with wherever they are. Because there are some kids who actually preferred homeschooling and being out, out of school. That For them, it was a relief, either because of the anxiety about the pressures of school. You know, they may have been picked on at school and bullied. So being away from school was a great thing. So we need to just listen to kids and find out where they're really at and try to respond to them with where they are. Certainly, Linda, with all of the anxiety and the challenges that people face in our society right now, are there concrete things that listeners to this program, people who tuned into Spirit in Action, things that they can be doing, encouraging other people to be doing that can make a real difference? Yeah, I think that one of the most important things that parents can do with their kids is to listen to what they have to say. So make it a practice every day to spend at least five minutes sitting down face-to-face with your kid, looking them in the eyes and listening to what they have to say. Not judging, not giving advice, just listening. They may not say anything to you for days, but opening that channel of communications will be critical to you in terms of them actually opening up. At some point they will, they'll share things with you. You'll get to understand what's going on with them and then you can know how to care for them. By the way, it's also going to help you. It's going to help you as an adult to feel better. We all need that level of connectedness to other individuals. And this is one of the ways you can have it. It's the joy of having kids in your home that you can be prompted to have this kind of interaction every day. This is not only important for children, by the way. I mean, you said we grow from that or we we are nurtured by that. But there's older people, there's neighbors, there's everything. I've often thought that my highest ministry would be the person to sit on the bench in the middle of town as people walk by, I talk to them. That's my idea of the perfect ministry. And that's what I try and do with spirit in action. Yeah. You know, in the children's mental health world, We've had a lot of discussion in the past few years about the importance of mothers looking into their baby's eyes, because that really contributes to the brain development of the child, because it's an interactive thing. This has been studied, and we know that it not only improves the development of the child's brain, it also has an impact on the mother, a physical impact that's been studied. So what we're learning now is that that kind of eye-to-eye connection is not only important for infants, it's important for your older kids, and it's important for the adults who are connecting with them. And I believe that's an opportunity for us to grow peace, because when we are peaceful in ourselves, we are going to take that more peaceful attitude and that more peaceful person out into the world. Yeah, that makes sense to me. There's an aspect of schools that 
<laughs> because I grew up as a male, I think much more so than with females, we expect us to get a certain amount of violence from other males. That's normal. But we've seen the increase in school shootings and all of that, which has happened over the past really 20 years. Is there any indication that we have a way of dealing with this, of decreasing violence? I, I guess when kids weren't together, violence couldn't happen in the same way. But still, we see people committing suicide because of being shamed via the various media that kids have access to. Certainly, Facebook and Scram have been in spotlight for that recently. Is there something that we can do about that? Is it there's something we can help? I'm afraid that too much of social media is going to lead us nowhere but bad. Well, you know, the first fact sheet that we did was on healthy use of screen time. I think that that's the challenge. And if you, Mark, you had a chance to look at our fact sheets, you'll see that on every fact sheet, we give some data. We talk about what's happening around this issue in Wisconsin, and we close with what can we all do about it? And so we make recommendations for parents, for schools, communities, and policymakers. What we did in that fact sheet on healthy use of screen times was we advised parents to know what your kids are doing, limit the number of hours that they're on, and make sure that they get sleep. <laughs> and you know, have a pact with them about what's going to be appropriate use. Because not all screen time is bad, and not all social media is bad, but there need to be some guidelines, you know, boundaries on it. In fact, we just had a listening session with teens and another one with young adults around social media. It was pretty interesting to us that the young adults said, you know, we've been dealing with this since we were really young. And we've been through some of the bad times. We've seen the really negative effects it can have on us. And we've learned how to manage what we do with our screen time so that we don't get depressed and we don't experience all the bad stuff. And they were really wanting to tell their younger siblings and younger friends, this is what you need to do so you don't get you know, majorly depressed by what you're seeing on there. One of the reasons we did the healthy screen time issue there's a lot of thinking that kids are getting bullied online. And the data actually show that in Wisconsin, physical in-person bullying is much worse than any online bullying. There may be some issues about how the data are collected, but we know that Wisconsin does not have as many requirements in place for schools in terms of having a, a specific bullying policy and following through on it. And we don't address it in ways that some other communities do. So that's an area where we could improve things. But I think in terms of gun use, you know, I think that that same fact sheet that you were looking at earlier actually shows that the number of gun incidents increased in the last year. Right. I saw that. Even though people were home. <laughs> so, I mean, we know that I think it's 45% of youth who suicide use a gun that belonged to their parents. So how do we protect kids? Lock up the guns, take them out of your home. That's really important. Pediatricians should be asking about that when you go for well-child visits. I'm not sure that they are asking about it. I'm not sure parents are complying with that, but it's a really important thing to do. 
I was interested to hear that the bullying statistics are not going in the right direction. There's a dear friend of mine, Catherine Koss, who was part of originating back more than 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the anti-bullying efforts in Wisconsin. Mm. I was hoping that we could report 25 years later that it had borne great fruit, but maybe we're not there yet. Maybe you need to introduce me. <laughs> I would like to. And she is right there in Madison. And so it okay. would be fruitful. I need to know about her. There's a whole lot I'd like to cover with you. And folks, we are speaking with Linda Hall. She is director of the Office of Children's Mental Health. That's a lot of syllables. You can also just say it by the initials, O-C-M-H. The website is children.wi.gov. And there's a lot of resources, information, fact sheets on that site that are going to be helpful for everyone. And I think we need to make this clear for other folks, Linda. You're not the boss of every agency in this state or of all the schools. You're providing information, direction, gathering information. So your role is, I guess, maybe more towards advisory and informative. Is that a fair way to say it? Exactly. Yes, advisory in terms of encouraging state leaders to work together to improve what's available for children in terms of mental health treatment and support. And then we publish an annual report that we deliver to the legislature on the well-being of children. And that report has 30-some indicators in it of children's well-being. And we re- and then we also report on the other things that we're doing to increase awareness around mental health. You said that this office was founded in 2014, so it's been seven years in existence. I assume that there was something there before, but now it's been elevated and further empowered to be influential, to be in a key place to help people in our state and hopefully inspire people across the country, things that could be achieved. What has been achieved in the seven years? Well, I think we addressed that a little bit before when we talked about increasing awareness of children's mental health, the importance of addressing it, growing school mental health services is, I think, been really contributed to by our group. We have gotten people working across departments and across sectors to fund initiatives related to children's mental health. One of the things that we do is we monitor innovations and initiatives that are happening right now in children's mental health. We have a document on our website that does that. So we're we're doing that. I think that we have been a major force in terms of celebrating Children's Mental Health Awareness Week, which continues every year to bring some more attention to that. You know, it's convening things. the The amount of money that's spent on children's mental health has increased, both in terms of payment for some services and in terms of money available to schools to have a school mental health, a program on mental health in their school. So those are some of the things I would point to. Maybe it goes without mentioning, but there was a time when I think probably our schools and our government didn't have any mental health programs for children. What existed before? How was mental health dealt with? I'm I'm thinking, what was supporting the mental health of the kids I knew in Togo in West Africa? What supports are there in the United States 150 years ago? So has mental health in the nation improved? Has it been shifted how we deal with it? I'm just looking at the broad evolution of mental health and how we deal with our children. 
Yeah, well, you you know, you said that before our office was created, there must have been something else that was there. There wasn't. There wasn't anything else there that was so focused on children's mental health. What else has changed over the years also is that there are more people aware of children's mental health. There are more people in schools working on it and getting kids actual access to therapists at school or getting them access to therapists in their community. That wasn't happening at all before. It just didn't happen. You only went to a therapist if you're probably if you were acting out so much that your parents couldn't figure out what else to do with you. And, you know, after months and months and months and years of aggravation, somebody said, well, you should try therapy. And so you did if you had health insurance, but it just wasn't being addressed. It's also in large part because of the stigma that so many people and so many parents don't want to be involved with mental health. They are fearful about what that means to say that they need that kind of support. What we are seeing um, that also has changed is that on college campuses, the requests for therapy are outstripping any ability of colleges to provide services for kids, for those students. So what we see that as happening for two reasons. One, there are high levels of anxiety among college students about succeeding. They feel a lot of pressure in college and to succeed at what they're doing. And because they are looking ahead to, you know, the employment world and that it's, they need to be, they want to be the best and that adds anxiety to them. But it's also because they are open to going to therapy and talking about these issues. So we think that the stigma is changing. We know that when kids have a chance to get some help at school, that a lot of times their parents, when their parents see them getting better because of the help that they've gotten that it opens up the parents to thinking about, well, maybe I should get engaged in this conversation. And we want that to happen because when parents are engaged with a child's treatment, it's going to go better and it's going to go faster. And we know that mental health therapy works. We know it works if people can get it. I understand that there's a problem, however, with having enough mental health professionals to deal with the degree of need. Yeah, that is a real problem across the whole country that we do not have enough mental health professionals to address the demand that is already there. You know, I believe that's because of two factors. One is that we don't pay enough in this field for people to go into the field. They People choose other things. The other is that there still continues to be uh, stigma around mental health. And so that keeps some people out of the field. I'm sorry to hear that it works that way. People who've been listening to Spirit in Action over the years know that it's certainly my premise that the good things that are being done in the world are not only a question of information, it's a question of the deep level motivation, something I'd call spiritual motivation. And I'd be interested in hearing about Linda Hall's background, something that leads you to 30 plus years of experience in children's mental health and well-being. That's certainly a lot of life. And I, I don't know that you only do it because of the big fat paycheck. Not the big fat paycheck. You know, some of it I think is, I think we're all sort of a combination of our DNA and our environment. And on the DNA part, I think from a very young age, I remember helping my mother teach Sunday school and feeling like this is something important for me to do is to be involved in helping other people. And then I grew up in a family that was working class, lower income, not poor, but close. 
and I experienced life from that. And I, you know, I, I experienced it some more when I went to college that it, I was different than some of the other kids and I needed to work through that. And all of that led me to just continually choosing to work in this area. I, I did for a while run an emergency food pantry in Chicago. And that was an interesting experience. I got to see a lot of different mental health conditions while I was there. But I also decided that for me, I wanted to go upstream from just handing out food to getting to trying to solve the problem some more. And that's what led me into public policy. Linda, one of the trails in your life, I mean, you grew up, I th- it, well, one of the, your experiences along the way was as Presbyterian. I understand you went to Presbyterian seminary along the way. And so was that part of the going the upstream or was that uh, before you decided that path? Yeah, that was before I ran the food pantry and wanted to go upstream. At that point, I got a master's in ethics. Um, or master's in theology with an emphasis in ethics. And at that point, I was considering going into academics, but decided against that for a number of reasons. And that's, and it was from there that I pivoted to the running the food pantry. But while I was at the seminary, I was also working for the Institute on the Church in Urban Industrial Society, which was an organization that studied what the church was doing around the world for poor workers. And so it was from that that, you know, we collected information on it. We talked to people who were uh, working with different urban people around the world. And that also led me to some work for a couple of years with the Church Committee on Human Rights in Asia, which was working on really on how American foreign policy was affecting the lives of people in other countries, especially working people. And we especially focused on Korea. And I went there a couple of times and was involved in learning about that situation and then coming back and talking to mostly women's groups at churches about how our Food for Peace initiative from the United States was destabilizing the agricultural economy in Korea and forcing girls to move to the city to work in factories. Hmm. The consequences of each of our actions, it rolls downstream and affects so many lives. Yeah, It's not easy to predict uh, something that's so well-intentioned that it would have negative impacts like that. Right. So you went to seminary. Does that mean that you became a minister? No, I didn't take the steps to become ordained. I've done leadership in different ways in churches without that, but not as an ordained person. And the reason I ask that is because it seems like maybe part of the ethical and moral motivation for your life and for all of this work with children's mental health and well-being of kids in Wisconsin and, and a wider world, it, it seems like it's morally, ethically driven. I'd be very interested in knowing why ministry or work using your training in seminary how important that was to the work you do now and and or why you didn't take that different path. I do think that I decided that ministry was not the realm I wanted to be in, that I wanted to be in a broader thing. And so, so policy and um, politics was the wider platform maybe to get involved in, in systems change. A lot of my focus right now, when I think about how does my work connect to Quaker principles and Quaker testimonies, 
I feel that a lot of what we're doing is helping people to heal and to become healthy adults. And in doing that, healthy adults who are connected to others, that in doing that, we are really contributing to peace. And I hope that we are creating the opportunities for more kids to grow into healthy, connected adults who think about reaching out and doing that in peaceful manners rather than acting out of fear and picking up guns. So many ways that we could be doing damage, but with a proper amount of light and love, we can actually steer ourselves and others in better direction. It seems like you've been doing that with your life, Linda. Are you feeling fulfilled at this point in your career? I am so excited to be in this position and to be working for Governor Evers. You know, I started out right after I worked at the food pantry. I worked in local government in Chicago. And so I've been involved in government kind of in one way or another for years. Uh, So lots of opportunity to see good and bad political leaders. And I just feel so lucky at this point in my life to be able to be working for a governor who really cares about people. He cares about kids. He does the right things. He's, he's ethical and he's really supportive of, of all our work. To be able to work for in an administration like that and to be able to take advantage of the things I've learned over the years and the connections I've made, it's just, it's tremendous. It's great. And you're tremendous. That's my experience both on the dance floor and off. <laughs> I, I think I'm really fortunate to have met you all these years ago and danced with you, usually yearly, but I look forward to more in 2022. I thank you so much for your work you're doing for the children, for the, for the state, for the nation, for the world, and I think really advancing light and love in the world. And I know that's probably not in the job description for Wisconsin Office of Children's Mental Health, but having you there as a director, I'm pretty sure does do that for the world. So thank you so much for that work, Linda, and for joining us today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be with you. And folks, again, we have a link to the Wisconsin Office of Children's Mental Health. It is children.wi.gov. It's on northernspiritradio.org. Please visit our site, comment on this program, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 